ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Greetings, I'm Tom Gilson. Today on ID the Future, we hear the third and final portion of a deep discussion on intelligent design represented by ID pioneer Dr. Michael Behe, speaking with philosopher, theologian Matthew Ramage, representing an influential Thomistic view of Roman Catholic philosophy and theology. They're hosted by Pat Flynn on his Philosophy for the People podcast, whose voice is the first you'll hear as they begin. Yeah, let me offer a few thoughts on this because I think there's a there's a lot of stuff here. Um and this is this is very fruitful actually. I think this is this is very clarifying. One is that Matt, you said something earlier I completely agree with that that God is not uh we don't get to God uh, certainly not as Catholics by by a inference to the best explanation, right? We're not assigning a credence to God of 87% or something like that, right? However, we don't. But many philosophers of religion do <laughs> right that's sort of how philosophy religion works these days is with your bayesian analysis right of people who've had these worldview comparison paradigms and then the atheists what they think supports their naturalistic worldview so substantially is not just the problem of evil but the problem of evil linked with evolutionary science and they just they just take that for granted right and they think that those two things in combination evolution especially how they think evolution helps to explain a lot of evil, just tips the scales decif- decisively in favor of naturalism and, uh, yeah, of the naturalistic hypothesis. So part of the reason I'm interested in what Mike's doing is he's not let, he's putting up a real challenge to them having those assumptions, right? That if, if evolution can't even get off the ground without some sort of, say, broadly theistic worldview, because I know Mike in his work has says, hey, I haven't said, who the intelligence is, right? Just th- that there is intelligence. Maybe it's polytheism. That would explain the camel, right? I mean, what what better? Uh, I mean, a committee, obviously, right? Or or maybe it's maltheism, right? Maybe that that explains the dysteleology. I like to use the Pontiac Aztec, a horrible design. My mom drived it for years. Like, who would design such a thing? But nobody doubts that it is designed, right? <laughs> right. But then I think that should actually invite people to do. Like it should be an invitation to the deeper metaphysics of saying, okay, I have some sort of design inference here. And there's a lot of other sort of worldviews that might initially be compatible with it, but naturalism's out, right? That's gone now. And I think that's really valuable, at least for a contemporary debate within philosophy religion, even though fundamentally I agree with you, Matt, I, I don't think this is the best way to reason to God, but that just is how so many, at least philosophers of religion are doing it these days. And so I guess from that perspective, and I can't help myself, I'm, I, I always get sucked into those debates. I do find them interesting, even though I, I think that's the wrong way to go about it. And in that sense, I think what Mike is contributing to them um, is really significant because it takes a huge amount away from what the naturalist thinks is tipping their scales hugely in their favor. And that sort of is how the debate works on a more popular level too. So I don't know what my general point is here, because uh, I agree with what you're saying from the Catholic paradigm and the traditional metaphysics, right? We, we get to God through metaphysical demonstration and stuff like that. But that just isn't how I think a lot of the religious debates are going now. So what do you think about that, Matt, uh, of what Mike's contributions are sort of in that other other context? And Mike, I'd like to get your thoughts on everything I just said as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I think like you said maybe a couple of years ago, it seems if it can get a person's foot in the door, get them thinking I mean, it's to me, there's a parallel there with, with other things in the faith. If they start off with a overly simplistic understanding or 
inchoate understanding of metaphysics and they get deeper, that's kind of the Christian way we go. We, it's the faith is faith seeking understanding, not you understand it all, then you believe. So that's why I, you know, in a, where I'm trying to work on the specialization of how God works in creation, I'll openly say as I have that I think ID is the wrong approach. But as far as when I teach this in the classroom, what do I do? I'll tell students, here's three or four different options. Here's naturalism you have to reject. I'll go through planting and things on how it's undermining of its own claims um, and, and things like this. But uh, yeah, ultimately um, I don't lead an evangelization with anything that I consider probable or which I strongly suspect to not be fully correct. Mike, why don't you offer a few final thoughts on that? If you guys have a couple extra minutes, maybe we could take some questions from the audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, again, it, it's frustrating because I, I agree with a whole lot of what Matt says. I think there are you know, logical proofs that you, Pat, agree with too. And I think the Catholic way of approaching, the Thomistic way of approaching it is, is correct. But there are other questions out there, and there are people who don't start from that uh, foundation. And if you look at polls uh, of, of kids who are leaving Christianity, leaving the faith, one of the top reasons is that science has explained it all. Science knows how everything works and so on. And yeah, you might be able to persuade them by getting them in a, in a, into a class at Benedictine College or some other good Catholic institution. But if you can challenge their presuppositions, which are taken from the popularization of Darwinism, if you can challenge them, you might, uh, you might get them to start rethinking things. And, and I think that would be a, a, a good, good thing to do. Um, so yeah, what I can say, what I'm trying to say is that I agree that by, if you are a, uh, a Catholic, a theist, you have all this foundation that Matt, you certainly have, Pat, you have, you know, this is, this is, you know, icing on the cake. But icing on the cake is, is nice, <laughs> especially when other disciplines are claiming the whole cake. And in my career, ever since my book came, has come out, I have been jumped on with both feet by Richard Dawkins, the National Academy of Sciences. You know, a committee of the Council of Europe has condemned intelligent design. Lots of folks. Don't forget what Alex Rosenberg said about you that one time. Yeah. <laughs> that was especially nasty. All right. I haven't heard any of those guys condemn Thomas Aquinas. I, they might be wrong, but it's not, that is not where the argument is being engaged in the 21st century. And I think that. <clears throat> Folks who, uh, and I, I wish we could get more support from Orthodox Catholic thinkers uh, who are not, you know, who, who can see the, uh, a bigger picture or more popular picture or something like that. Uh, because I think this has, has a lot of potential. Lots of people come up to me at talks and say, 
you know, I was an atheist. And then I read Darwin's Black Box and that got me thinking, and here I am today, you know. And and I know I, I think of the people who read it and then threw it away and says, oh, this is tripe. <laughs> but somebody read it and thought it was an interesting and, and started to rethink their world view. So this not might not be the great and the sharpest tool in the box, but it is a tool in the box. And I don't think it should be uh, dismissed uh, by by uh, Catholic thinkers. Mm-hmm. You guys have time for a couple questions from the audience here before we, and I want to make sure you both get to mention your, your books and everything you're currently working mm-hmm. on at the end here as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me just, this is more of a comment than a question, but we can get your guys' interaction on it. ND Irish says, as far as I'm concerned, the question is not, is intelligent design credible? Because it's clearly, it clearly is if you believe in God. And that's, that's surely true, right? On, on some level, right? If you're a theist, you, you believe in intelligent design, right? Uh, he wants to know, the real question is, is so-called macro evolution Incredible. So that's definitely not the discussion we've been having today. I don't know if you guys want to <laughs> comment on that at all. I, I, Matt, it sounds like you would almost say say yes, but why don't you guys just offer a few maybe brief remarks if you don't mind? <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I have an undergraduate biological education. Um, keep studying for the last twenty plus years, but uh, frankly, I think Richard Dawkins. You just go read Richard Dawkins's book, The Greatest Show on Earth. It's very good. It takes a few jabs at us Christians. Uh, some of these guys who are complete jerks to um, Mike, which is really sad, um, in their popularizations, they don't get it all right, but it's pretty helpful. Again, Ostriaco, his little Thomistic Evolution book, does a nice job on macroevolution. I, I see that sometimes used as a wedge people do. Uh, I, again, I don't think they get this from Mike, um, but they'll try to say, well, you can have micro but not macroevolution. Um, as if those were easily dividable. Uh, but again, I, again, I'm a theologian. This whole topic we're discussing today is a tenth of what I did in my book. Um, the, uh, the real thing driving that usually is biblical literalism. And so they're using that as a, as a wedge. And I think like people misuse Mike's work. Uh, there's a, an abuse that they do there as well. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great point. And we always remember that abuse does not negate proper use, right? Certainly, I think uh, there's a lot of abuses that could go on for people wanting to defend their prior commitments, you know, come hell or high water or what have you. But uh, yeah, and I do want to mention uh, real quick before Mike responds that uh, Matt Matt and I ha- did have more of a conversation of more of the other content related to your book. Probably it was, I don't know, was that a year and a half ago or something? I, I'll link that in the show notes so people can can uh, hear that. And it really had nothing to do with, with ID, but I thought it was really well done and, and very helpful in general. So I want to make sure that that gets, uh, that gets uh, put out there as well. So Mike, all right, your, your comments now on this. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was just going to say that, uh, that that's an excellent question from the, from the audience. Uh, and again, you have to wonder what you mean by evolution, evolution in the co- ter- time in the sense of common sense, as far as I'm concerned, macro evolution and that is common descent could have happened because if you have a designer if you have an intelligence guiding stuff then a lot of things are possible which otherwise would not be possible if you mean macro evolution by a darwinian process no that can't happen and in my latest book 2019's darwin devolves 
I say that the evidence, that genetic evidence and other stuff, a reasonable place to draw the line where Darwinian process can work up to is the level of the family. That's, that's kind of cats versus dogs. Mm -hmm. So the point is, if, if you have a wolf, you can get a fox and you can get a domestic dog. And if you have, you know, a lion, you might be able to get tigers and, and so on. But starting from a cat, you can't get a dog and vice versa. And I have diverse lines of reasoning with that, one of which is that if you look at the very evolutionarily prolific genera that are always trotted forward as examples of evolution, you don't see evolution beyond the level of genus. That is, you don't see family. For example, in Darwin's finches, the Galapagos finches, there are 15 or so species on there. They're supposed to be descended from a mainland South American species. You get uh, maybe five or so genera. You don't get any new families. In Hawaiian Drosophila, there are fruit flies that apparently were an invasive species in Hawaii a couple million years ago. You got hundreds of new species. That's crazy. Hundreds. You get a dozen or so new genera. Wow. You get no new families. Cichlid fish in lakes in Africa. In Lake Victoria, Lake Victoria was dry 15,000 years ago. And now in the present day, there are hundreds of cichlid fish species that exist nowhere else in the world. So they must have evolved there in just the past 10,000 years or so. You got you get close to a thousand new species, 20 or so new genera, and zero new families. So for that and other reasons, I argue in my book that the scientific evidence shows or at least strongly implies that you can get evolution by a Darwinian process up to the level of genera, but with family and above, cats and dogs and stuff and above, you need, uh, you need instructions. You need purposeful, intelligent design uh, to get that far. So back to the questioner's question, you know, there's a lot of distinctions you have to make in there, but when you do, and the answer is no, you can't get macro evolution in the sense of birds from, you know, uh, from land animals or, or other big changes, but you can't get some stuff. And sure. I think this actually is really good and helpful as a clarification point for me, because as a theologian, again, I back up in a way a lot of theologians don't when they think things about the prelapsarian state, like they think there was no death of anything whatsoever, for example. And I urge them to consider, well, what would that do to the process of nature if there was no death period before the fall? It turns out even Aquinas thought there was death of non-humans before the fall. So the way I'm applying this here is, uh, again, not to debate any of the biology or anything that Mike has presented here, but I, I may well agree with him on the phenomenology of it, the what happened. 
but it makes it sound like from what he's saying that God comes in, you have an evolution up to a certain point of fish, but the cichlid, he comes in and directly makes one appear on earth. And that's probably not what Mike is saying, but that's what the average person gets out of it. So I, I, I found it helpful when I, you know, the past couple of years of reading Mike to clarify my own thinking of what he's saying. It just, that is the way it's conveyed. I think more, maybe it was reading Meyer helped this actually too, was how the design, it, it, again, is already there or built in, he's trying to say. So, um, you know, from that perspective, but what you just said was the evolution doesn't happen on the whole, that the immediate way a person hears that is that God goes in and interrupts the creative process by tweaking it. So that's why I don't think the average Thomas is being unfair. Uh, they, they just need that clarification. The, the average person gets that takeaway. So I was glad to hear what you just said, but I fear that if I didn't make the comment I just made, the person asking the question may have taken away the wrong impression. Yeah, let me um, just just quickly try and articulate how how I understand it in the way I've always sort of uh, made the inference. And certainly I'll grant that I could see how people could 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 draw that implication, even though I certainly don't think it's the right one. And it's not the one that um, Mike himself makes is that, again, it's sort of I go back to McIntyre. McIntyre is great on this. He's like, you have to try and look through different paradigms to evaluate them. Right. And what I hear. Mike saying in the ID people is like, if we're looking through the naturalistic paradigm, right, there's a hard limit here that can't be crossed, that can't be traversed. And so that means, see you later to that paradigm, right? But then if we're looking through the theistic paradigm, it's not like it's a naturalistic paradigm and then it's a theistic paradigm, right? <laughs> Where God then like comes in, which is the, the thing that you're worried about, Matt, and, and fair enough. No, it's just a theistic paradigm through and through. So it's not like, necessarily like up to the level of family and then a disjointedness god's like oh gotta give it a little bump here right or <laughs> something like that i don't think that's that's i certainly yeah and i think we all agree that's not the right way to think about it so that's why i keep returning to theory comparison or paradigm comparison and saying when we're looking through this paradigm yeah macro evolution doesn't make sense it just wouldn't be possible but if you if you think that it's actually occurred that's reason to switch your paradigm and then, yeah, and then if you switch your paradigm, you're obviously going to have to think differently on a metaphysical level and philosophy of, of nature as well. Is that helpful at all? I don't know if that even makes any sense. <laughs> well, if you want to call it macro devolution, okay. It's just that, again, clarification is important. And the average person thinks that that means that species did not evolve, uh, did not come, I should say, I should take evolve out of the definition. Species did not arise over time through natural processes. That's why for me, this has been a valuable addendum discussion to know where Mike's at. And like yeah. I said, when I did, Well, I in, in, in my defense, I should say, I say all this stuff in my books. And I say it, what I say clearly in, in, in English. And uh, I understand that people who live in a culture where it's just saturated with materialism and resistance to materialism and so on can take shorthand stuff and, and come to the incorrect conclusions. What bothers me is when academics go out and talk to, talk to other academics and miss 
describe what I'm saying, which is right there in the books. Uh, that that uh, I think that's a, an academic fault. It's not just a cultural thing. Uh, it's it's the responsibility I think of philosophers and academics to say, okay, well, here's this idea. This seems a little off. You know, people are saying this. Well, is there a core? Is there something good in this core here? Why, you know, look, can we actually uh, perceive design by a purposeful arrangement of parts? Oh, that sounds okay to me. Are there limits to Darwinism? Well, maybe there are. How about common descent? Common descent, well, look right here. He says he, he believes in common descent too. And then when the academic goes and writes books or gives seminars, they should tell others that, you know, don't believe all these misattributions and don't, maybe not even believe this thing that this author says over here. You know, in general, the book's pretty good. I don't, I don't like this over here. But, yeah, there is this kernel of stuff. But in my experience, many folks, including academics, dis ID, give it the back of their hand, say that, oh, we don't need that. We're Thomists. We, you know, we can prove that there is a, a first, a first cause and so on. And give the impression to their audience that there is nothing worth seeing here. And I think that's a disservice to the audience and to the broader culture here, which is drowning in materialism. Yeah, I, I'm going to make one quick response. Uh, if you're implying I'm one of those academics, I mean, it's been two or three years since I read your book, but I wouldn't say the things, the things I said if I didn't get a clear answer out of what I was just asking for. So it could be I'm a bad reader. You know, that's always possible that I, you know, didn't score high enough on the SAT. But that's why I think this sort of thing is valuable. And I, and why, again, I, I understand why you're very defensive about it. But I, I don't often see those explanations in ID theorists put very prominently. And that to me is a huge problem. And so I'm, I'm very happy to hear you reiterate again what I already knew, right? Which is that you, you don't reject the, the actual established science, but I'm coming from a perspective of a Catholic environment, a very different environment than you probably inhabit. Whereas I see it, the main problem we're dealing with here is what's the faith going to look like in 10, 20, 30 years. And um, what I've found in teaching it is that I've actually had more effectiveness through the more classical methodology, through showing how God works through nature rather than in the exceptional. But like I said, I, you may not think this from my, my comments, but I actually do try to give ID a, a fair thumbs up as an option people take. But um, I can relate also to your experience with the backhand because Ratzinger often gets the backhand too. So uh, I, I, I've, I've learned a newfound empathy even from this discussion. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, 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 Matt, obviously I, I love your work. I knew this would be a, a good discussion. And I, I know both of you two very much care about getting things right. Right. And, you know, we all, we all, you know, make mistakes here and maybe don't read as, as carefully as, as we should. And that's, that's, and I'm not saying you did that, Matt. Um, I'm just, I'm just saying 
uh, yeah, I knew that I knew this would be a, a fruitful exchange and it has been so far. There's another question here about uh, actually, yeah, I do want to, I do want to, uh, bring this up just quickly, Mike, you've, you've addressed this a million times, even in our previous conversations, but it's always, as this commenter says, the big elephant in the room. So we might as well just, uh, give it a little attention before we close out here. Mark wants to know, do, uh, ID arguments erroneously construe God of the gaps. That's kind of the, the most, probably the most common objection, right? Hey, hey, Dr. B, he haven't you heard about the, an argument from ignorance fallacy, right? And don't you, don't you know oh, that? Well, oh. <laughs> haven't you heard this one, Mike? So yeah, why don't you me? give us your, uh, your quick response to, to this concern? And then Matt, we'll, sure. we'll, uh, maybe if you have anything else you want to add to go for it. Uh, the, the quick answer to that is that ID is not an argument from ignorance, which is something like, you know, I don't know how this happened, so God did it. ID is an argument from knowledge. It was a whole lot easier to think that evolution by random change and selection was true back in Darwin's day when we knew a whole lot less about life. Again, thought that the cell was a piece of jelly. But over time, science has probed more and more deeply into life, discovered that there is a genetic code, a code, uh, which is something we always associate with an intelligence, that DNA is full of information, that in fact, the cell is run by molecular machines whose elegance and complexity uh, exceeds pretty much anything we have been able to make as intelligent beings. We recognize how to, we know how to recognize the work of a mind. And it's when we see things that have been purposely arranged. And the more they are arranged and the more sophisticated they are, the more and more and more confident we can be in, uh, in the conclusion of design. So it's a mistake. It's a grievous mistake to think that just because part of the ID argument is to show why the current understanding of Darwinism is wrong, that is not the whole argument. It's not even the argument for ID. The argument for ID is the elegance and complexity and design that has been discovered in life. Excellent. Matt, any final thoughts on that? And then we can make sure we people know about all the uh, work you guys have done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like how he, he put that. If it adds one more feather in our cap or another layer of design, uh, the only thing I really come out of the conversation not fully satisfied, I guess, with is just, you know, this deeper fundamental level that philosophy gets to of how the different orders of causality of how it, the people get the impression that if this specifically is designed, what about the ordinary things? But if it helps people to see how Mike pointed out that this is a particular illustration of it, then I can see the, the, the value in that. Um, mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, whether it's, fine tuning your ID, what have you, whatever part of nature you can point to to show the beauty of God's hand, I'm for that. Okay, can I make a, a brief comment? Because I, I listened to your talk on uh, last night, Matt, uh, at the what, Thomistic House of Study or Thomistic Institute in Washington. It was up on the uh, internet. Uh, and just to get prepared for today's talk. And you used a, a great analogy, I thought, of God's causality and, and secondary causality of playing a piano, that the pianist plays the notes, and it's, it's and essentially it's the piano that's making the music, but it's, it's the pianist that's playing the notes. 
And I think that that was great. And you could think of the pianist playing middle C. Suppose the pianist keeps hitting middle C. Do, 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 do. And that's kind of like our studying a billiard ball knocking off different cushions of a pool table. It follows Newton's law repeatedly. It's God who is imparting causality to that. That's great. I think that's true. But now, suppose we hear the piano playing a very complex, beautiful melody. Intelligent design says we can tell that melody was purposely made, purposely designed. Sure, it comes through the piano, uh, and the pianist does other things, does regular stuff, might do scales a lot, and so on. And that's not to say that the pianist isn't doing scales, but when we see this beautiful melody, we know that was purposely designed. It's not just scales, it's, it's something else. And we can point to other people and say, hey, this melody has been purposely designed. So I think the aspect of causality that is of interest yourself of divine causality and secondary causality, I think you can approach that pretty straightforwardly through a design perspective. And that's, I don't think they conflict. And it'd be wonderful if a theologian such as yourself or other folks uh, would take up that cause and say, if this is true, how do we account for it? How do we uh, view it in terms of our, you know, domestic uh, categories? Yeah. Excellent. I like the music. I like the melody example. Right. So, um, I, I would love to extend the conversation. I actually ha I'm talking to Dr. Chris Kazor here on the on the ethics of, of pro-life here in a little bit. But I want to make sure before I uh, wrap this one up that you guys get to both plug your your, your books. And uh, so, Matt, why don't you go first? Mention your newest yep. book out here and make sure people know what it is, what else they can expect from it and where to get it. And then Mike will go to you. Mm -hmm. uh, from the dust of the earth. Anyway, <laughs> the Bible and the theory of evolution. Uh yeah, so the real concern there is looking at all of creation in light of Christ, and it's it's ultimately about showing the glory of God's handiwork, um, and especially dealing with the implications of the paschal structure of creation, how Christ is the one in whom and for whom and through whom all things were created. So what are the implications of evolutionary theory and reading the Bible in light of its original ancient context? for how we understand man's origin, sin, death, and salvation. So again, not extremely related on the whole to this topic, but broader aspects of evolution that Pope Benedict goes into. Excellent. And again, I'm going to not only just recommend uh, that one, but your other books as well, which you had uh, conversations on, including one on, on dark passages, I thought was really good. So I'll be sure all those get linked in the show notes, and I'm going to encourage people to pick those up. And how about you, Mike? Working on anything new? If not, make sure you remind us of your previous work that people can check out. Yeah, uh, nothing new in the works right now, but uh, this is my book, uh, Darn's Black Box. It was published over 25 years ago, but it's still uh, apropos. And, and all of the stuff I talk about there is, is still, uh, I, I think, relevant. My newer book came out um, two years ago, Darwin Devolves makes the case that Darwin's mechanism does work, but it works so mainly by breaking things, breaking genes and stuff, and that sometimes helps. Um, 
So those are the, the ones I'm going to push right now. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'll link all the books mentioned in the show notes. And again, I hope people will take advantage and support both of you guys in the work that you're doing. Also, please consider supporting the podcast. If you like the content here, if you like these dialogues, you can help us out by liking, sharing, leaving review, all that good stuff. And comment. Let us hear your thoughts after this exchange. We'd love to see some always civil. Keep it civil. These two gentlemen were a great uh, example here of how to have civil, productive conversations. So please, please emulate that in the comments. But we'd like to hear all of your thoughts uh, as well. So Mike and Matt, thank you both so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Nice to meet you, Matt. You too. That was Michael Behe and Matthew Ramage talking intelligent design, philosophy, and theology. Once again, we express our appreciation to their host in this conversation, Pat Flynn, for permission to republish this audio from his Philosophy for the People podcast. For ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.